So since the dawn of space exploration and human spaceflight in the 60s with NASA and the Gemini Apollo programs, only a few hundred people ever were you know, lucky and privileged enough to go to space. And things have been changing you know, in the last decade. Numbers have been slowly going up thanks to the advent also of other like private companies or like other countries being more present and developed in the, in the space industry. But over the many billions of people that ever lived on the planet, only a few hundred people ever went space. And so there's a kind of like similarity in a sense with early development of aeronautics, uh, where you know in the early 1900s only a few hundred people were uh, privileged, lucky enough to use an airplane and travel with that uh, new new transportation system. So. Uh, we hope that the same in the space exploration currently and would be able to increase the number of people going to space by many folds. Imagining myself to be able to contribute on building any other space station around the moon, going to the surface of the moon and perform some experiments there, that would be amazing. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with a NASA engineer and innovation pioneer with an eye on the special technologies and systems that will facilitate humanity's leap to a multi-planetary species. As part of Deep Blue Institute's interest in advocacy for technologies that support maritime urbanism or floating cities, we recognize that many of the concepts and tech innovations that support extended space flight and habitation provide proofs of concept for the solution sets that will facilitate the realization of remote ocean-based habitats serviced by off-grid energy, water, and waste systems. Our guest today has been following and supporting the link between these fields since 2017, when he and I met and collaborated on a number of presentations. Be sure to stay tuned after the closing of this podcast when we ask Roberto about the Fermi paradox and how we may eventually discover life in other parts of the universe. Roberto, thank you so much for joining us in the Blue Economy Primer. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, hi, Greg. Uh, thanks so much for having me here and uh, for the great introduction. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's a great pleasure to be here. So like you said, we connected back in the Bay Area around 2017. Uh, that's where I was living and working at NASA Ames Research Center. So one of the NASA centers located in Silicon Valley, Mountain View. And I've been working uh, at NASA Ames since... 2015, so almost 10 years, and uh, I'm an aerospace engineer by background, and in the last few years, I've been working on some uh, really neat uh, new type of technology cutting-hand projects. One of them is called Astrobee, is a series of free-flying robots that we use inside the International Space Station, and they are used kind of like a mix between drones and space Roombas and uh, research platforms, so they do, uh, we do a lot of experiments, science and technology experiments, uh, using the uh, environment of the ISS. And then another project is called, uh, it's a solar sail spacecraft. So it's a, a type of satellite that will demonstrate a new type of solar sail for the, um, the use of this technology in the future for space exploration. Neat. So can you tell us from your point of view, what do you think is the link between seasteading or floating city technologies and the, and the technologies that support humanity's adventures into space? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's really a lot of uh, commonalities here. If you think about it, space habitats or settlements on other worlds have a lot of co in common with floating cities. Um, if you think about it, you know, there's a, first of all, they are both kind of solutions of settlements in very harsh environments. So the need of very sustainable technologies is uh, is a requirement and uh, all kind of stuff like 
the reuse uh, of all kinds of technologies and life support systems and, uh, you know, growing your own food and then like the harvesting of the energy and reuse of that. I have a lot of commonalities uh, between the two. Interesting. Do you have any favorite or key benchmarks or statistics that for you characterize your work or the importance of space exploration to humanity's future? Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, it's more uh, kind of like uh, just a reminder about some numbers uh, about space exploration. So since the dawn of space exploration and human space flight in the 60s with NASA and the Gemini Apollo programs, only a few hundred people ever were, you know, lucky and privileged enough to go to space. And things have been changing, you know, in the last decade. Numbers have been slowly going up thanks to the advent also of other like private companies or like other countries being more present and developed in the in the space industry. But over the many billions of people that ever lived on the planet, only a few hundred people ever went space. And so there's a kind of like similarity in a sense with early development of aeronautics, uh, where, you know, in the early 1900s, only a few hundred people were uh, privileged lucky enough to use an airplane and travel with that uh, new, new transportation system. So uh, we hope that the same in the space exploration currently and would be able to increase the number of people going to space by many folds. And I understand that you recently competed in the process with the European Space Agency to try to become a mission mission specialist. Can you tell us about that? And I understand you did very well. You weren't chosen, but did very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a, an amazing process and experience. I uh, I, I competed with other twenty two thousand people, uh, and I arrived in the last thirty thirty five. So, which was, you know, uh, statistically is a really, really hard process and very, very low chance of success. And uh, although, you know, I got so close to the end and it was an amazing experience, it was uh, at the same time a bit depressing because I put a lot of effort and, uh, and hope in it. Uh, I thought I was going to get selected in a sense and uh, uh, unfortunately that didn't happen. So yeah, but any, anyways, like that kind of like reinforced even more my, my dream of uh, wanting to become an astronaut and uh, go, go to space. And so uh, I understand that NASA has another process coming up. Yeah, yeah. So NASA, um, there's a, a every four years, three, four years, uh, NASA has their, their own uh, astronaut selection process. And so hopefully I can apply for that and see if, uh, you know, I have better luck in that. All right. Well, good luck with that. Obviously, we'll be uh, staying in touch to see if you uh, get on a mission. What do you imagine would be the type of mission that you may be involved with? Yeah, yeah. So right now, there's a, there's a lot of interest and attention focused on the bringing you know astronauts back to the moon with the Artemis program. And NASA is slowly transitioning from the International Space Station, which orbits the Earth, to another space station that will orbit the moon. It's called the Lunar Gateway. And so there's a, like a, this big effort endeavor in moving on to deeper space towards the, the moon and deeper. So, you know, just uh, imagining myself to be able to contribute on uh, building, uh, you know, any other space station around the moon or even just, you know, going to the moon, to the surface of the moon and uh, build uh, and perform some experiments there, that, that would be amazing. Wow. Yeah. Mind blowing just to think about. So I understand you've been to about five or six different NASA facilities, including obviously working at Ames for a long time. Uh, regionally, we are very proud of NASA Michoud here in the New Orleans area and the fact that locally, just 25 minutes away from where we're sitting here in the Garden District, Louisiana technicians are building the rockets that will transport the first woman to the moon. 
maybe you'll be on the mission with her. Uh, what <laughs> so. is what what is your impression or takeaways from your uh, visit to Michoud while you were here? Yeah, yeah. So I was was really lucky to uh, get connected with someone who was able to give me a little tour of the facility there, Michoud, and it was incredibly impressive. I think it's one of the the biggest hangars or like uh, self standing facility i've ever seen it's just like a maybe like a almost like a small city in inside this huge manufacturing building where they they have all the different uh, stages and parts of the rockets and they assemble them together and they put them together uh, to the end when they ship them to kennedy space center and they launched from the launch launch site in uh, in florida yeah it was it was incredibly impressive you know being able to see all the different parts the different stages of the rockets which is going to be the most powerful and the biggest rocket uh, that will go to the to the moon and it was like very well organized so i think most of it is uh, managed and used by commercial companies like boeing and uh, Lockheed martin i think blue origin is also working uh, on some projects there for the human lander. So there's kind of like, NASA is kind of like a supervisor of all these different sections uh, where they are responsible for building the parts of the rocket. But yeah, so just being able to see all these parts of the rocket and then like these most cutting edge facilities and machines that assemble and test rockets, uh, they were like, really, really cool. Yeah, you don't get to know too much. That's a, that's a bit unfortunate because uh, among the Na 10 NASA centers across the US, you don't usually hear about Michoud, or actually, I, even before coming here, I was a bit confused whether Michoud was located at the same place as Stannis Space Center. That's where they actually do the the uh, engine fire tests for where rockets. Is Stannis? Stannis is actually just across the the border in Mississippi, okay. which is like an hour away from here, like east from here. So they're two separate uh, centers, but uh, Michoud is just very impressive. They have like you know some of the most advanced technologies and and machines to do their uh, assembly and the testing of the rockets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we've had a chance to talk to some other folks that have worked at Michoud related to offshore wind and all that, but I didn't realize that there was that much collaboration going on in terms of of different companies. Yeah, you know, on that you've been in town for I think a little over a week and uh, gotten to see a number of different organizations and meet folks that are involved in the different aspects of uh, what we call our innovation ecosystem here in New Orleans. Uh, you visited New Society, you got to meet Tim Williamson, you visited The Beach, uh, you got to meet Rebecca Conwell, the executive director there. You got to meet and listen to uh, Michael Hecht of GNO Inc. and talk about what's going on there. So can you give us a little bit of uh, your impression of, of what you're seeing in New Orleans in terms of the, the innovation ecosystem here and uh, the how we're creating an environment where technologies, whether it be from Michoud or, or other sectors, uh, could could really start to make an impact on uh, economic development and the world in general? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I got the privilege to, to attend some of these events and the some, some of the talks were just focused on the renewable technologies and the resources, the use of the resources. So it was very impressive to hear that New Orleans and Louisiana in general are trying to have a much bigger footprint on uh, transitioning our use of you know fossil fuels energy sources to more renewable sources like you know solar and wind and those whatsoever. So just hearing that there's a lot of really cool projects going on here and that uh, uh, there's a huge attraction and uh, investment in uh, in uh, trying to make uh, New Orleans the new nexus for this kind of transition for all these efforts. So that was very impressive to me, and uh, I'm actually really excited. And New Orleans is 
it's actually really totally makes sense that uh, this is being worked here in New Orleans because it's a it's such a like fulcrum for all kind of different resources and technologies. Uh, also historically, New Orleans has always been a place where a lot of cutting edge technologies and were developed and built. Uh, and there's like you know big influence from the maritime side, all the kind of like this the the gateway to like all the uh, you know the rest of the U.S. So it could totally be like you know the place where everything can change. Great. Well, it's always good to hear that, obviously. So aside from the uh, let's call it the more technical or professional stuff that you experienced here, any highlights in terms of uh, food or music or experiences getting out around town and experiencing the unique culture that we have here? Yeah, yeah, it was it was just amazing to I don't know if this is just a, a special time, but I don't think so. As far as I understand, it's pretty much all, all year round. Uh, but I, I was able to go to a bunch of shows, jets shows and other music shows all around town. And uh, yeah, they were like just uh, you see like how the city is just so alive and happy and all together just uh, sharing this amazing cultural moments and uh, music moments so yeah it was just really cool and then of course the food the food is uh, is just amazing uh, everything from like seafood to like you know meat or whatever everything was like perfectly well cooked well done so well, we, di- we didn't mention you're actually originally from Italy. Uh, sometimes we say here in uh, Louisiana that we have a, uh, a Mediterranean culture or a Caribbean culture. So uh, I imagine there's probably some fun parallels in terms of lifestyle and all uh, ways of life between Italy and New Orleans. Oh, yeah, I can, I can definitely mention a few um, uh, similarities like the... The, the streets and the roads are uh, reminds me a lot <laughs> back of Italy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just kidding. But uh, but no, yeah, for sure. Like the culture, like uh, seeing uh, how everybody is just uh, very proud of being uh, from here and uh, like sharing all the, the local culture. The same thing in Italy, like everybody has like such a strong cultural uh, traditions. And uh, yeah, with the upcoming uh, Mardi Gras here, everybody is just... Uh, so happy and uh, excited about the parades and, the, and the, the, the parties in town. And then, of course, the food is just the other big kind of like strong tradition here, which re- reminds me a lot of Italy. Of course, uh, the weather, uh, in a sense, can be also kind of like linked to what, what I experienced in Italy. So, yeah, I can totally understand why it's called the Mediterranean influence. And where are you from in Italy? I'm from Naples, the okay. south. And I imagine your uh, your family and friends in uh, Naples must be very excited and proud about all the, the, the type of work you're, you're doing at NASA and beyond. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Every time I go back, I always bring a bunch of uh, swag and, uh, you know, all kind of like uh, gadgets from NASA. And, and then whenever I, uh, I go back, I see them wearing, wearing it uh, in the streets all the time, you know, just uh, bragging about me all the time. So it's very, it's very satisfying. Yes. Yeah. Well, well deserved, I'm sure. So to your uh, specialty in terms of uh, solar technologies and, and solar sales, but also solar energy in general, uh, obviously the solar, solar energy generation out in space is a key source of energy. Can you talk a little bit about the link of the development of those types of technologies and how those may be uh, supporting or uh, influencing solar energy on Earth? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the sun is this huge uh, source of energy up there in the sky. And we just need to, like, 
I mean, if we don't use it, it's just, it's just in a sense, lost. So we, we have so much opportunity by using the energy uh, from the sun, uh, whether it's from, you know, uh, on Earth uh, with solar panels or there's like solar farm farms. There's actually a few uh, concepts of uh, uh, using um, some uh, solar farms in space. Uh, where you can collect. There's a few on, on the on the ground already, but you know if you go in space, the there is no atmosphere, uh, very little atmosphere, so you can uh, use more power from the sun. Uh, if you collect with big mirrors all that energy in space, and then you you transmit it down to Earth as a different form of electromagnetic waves, uh, you can really make a huge use of the sun. The the, the, the solar uh, radiation. And then another way of actually using the sun in a kind of like related project that I'm working on is uh, with uh, so-called solar cells. If you uh, basically uh, deploy like a big metallic blanket, which is a solar cell in space, you can collect a lot of the, the energy, the solar radiation emitted from the sun, and you can use it to propel in space without using uh, your own propeller, without bringing your own propellant. So it's kind of like the cleanest and the uh, the greenest, most renewable energy kind of source to, to move around space. And then okay, that's all. It's very, it's very cool because it opens up a lot of really interesting missions uh, that uh, cannot be uh, currently performed with other technologies. And so, yeah, like uh, there's all kind of uh, amazing uh, opportunities by using the, the sun. Mm -hmm. So on those types of technologies that you're working on and are being developed for space flight and for the space station, et cetera, we talked about how there are some parallels with how those could be informing or helping to prototype and scale floating cities or maritime technologies. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of those technologies may be as may relate to water and waste? And, and in fact, you had an experience where you were part of a, an experiment of being in sort of a, a habitat or biosphere for uh, some, some time, which I, I imagine incorporated some of those technologies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was privileged uh, enough to, to uh, do one of these missions called Astronaut Analog Missions. So I was in uh, isolation for 45 days with NASA at the uh, Johnson Space Center in Houston, uh, simulating a mission to Mars and back. Uh, it was an you know, expedited mission. With how many people? We are four people, uh, without three people, so four people total. And so, yeah, we were working together as a team, as a crew, to uh, perform uh, uh, all kinds of experiments and tasks that astronauts you know, do in space and yeah so there's all kind of technologies that in general are used uh, on the international space station for example or even in our simulation and in our habitats there were some simulated uh, technologies that are used for that and uh, all kind of stuff that you know when once you're in space you have like very limited resources that you need to bring with yourself and um, and uh, you need to try and be as efficient as you can uh, being able to reuse and recycle as much as you can from all those resources. And so, you know, uh, going from, you know, recycling, you know, even, uh, you know, urine that goes, there's, you know, the usual joke around astronauts that uh, coffee of today is coffee of, uh, for tomorrow. <laughs> because, you know, you just recycle everything, all the water on the urine uh, in the space station, it gets recycled over and over up to like 95%. And so uh, also things like from recycling and, uh, purifying the atmosphere or like, you know, even uh, the, the solid waste. Now there's, you know, being a lot of work and research in trying to recycle even the solid waste. And then of course, like all the, try to limit the uh, waste of, you know, uh, energy, transportation and stuff like that. 
So you can imagine all of these technologies can be applied to floating cities or sea cities in a very different way. So that's, those are the, some of the most common kind of similarities and uh, applications that you, you, we have in common between these two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously then, you know, we're talking about extreme examples and, and being on a floating community is a much less extreme example than being in an isolated space station or or being on a trip to Mars or even living on Mars, that sort of thing. So in terms of these technologies, what are more broadly, I know you're very bullish, you're very uh, optimistic about all the different ways that, that technologies that have been developed for space and will be developed for space habitation and space travel uh, have influenced and will influence terrestrial life. So can you talk a little bit more broadly about what are some of the things that you see either in the past or future or both that are important innovations that uh, have come and will come from the space industry? Yeah, yeah. So that's all kind of like endless, an endless list of of technologies and, uh, and the things that were initially developed for space and then we have them in our our everyday objects that you know just people don't know or forget about it, you know from like Velcro or like I don't know uh, some the um, the the MRI scan uh, for brains a lot of you know some other technologies like uh, materials that were used for the wheels of the space shuttle were actually uh, ended up being used in uh, like normal uh, car wheels. Uh, there's all kind of like materials and uh, applications like that that got introduced and widespread in our current society but other than that or like gps for example like you know gps was developed for 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 space initially and uh, and now it's everywhere with uh, our smartphones and uh, and uh, you know airplanes and cars whatever so it's all these kind of technologies that initially were not even being imagined to be so nested in our society now they're like just uh, everywhere and we just like we can live without so yeah in the future i i I see uh, there's a lot of focus a lot of momentum about doing research in the biological medical uh, field in space so you know the the main thing about uh doing experiments and research in space is uh, using the microgravity environment which is mainly uh you know weightlessness so in a sense the gravity that is balanced out so you you have this kind of uh, you know uh, weightlessness and then the other thing is the, the the radiation environment which is you know all kind of nasty radiation coming from the sun and the space and so you can use that uh, to do all kind of other experiments but so the main the main one that is usually used right now is the weightlessness environment and uh, you can imagine that uh, without gravity in a sense quote unquote uh, you uh, you can test all kind of technologies or or science uh, scientific phenomena associated with all kind of different things like you know new medicines new materials there is like you know a, a, there's a, a 3D printer on the ISS that is testing a way to 3D print organs in space because if you if you think about it like without gravity you can do some kind of additive 3D printing much more easily and uh you know for for organs or like biological uh, materials it's uh, it's way easier without gravity and then like there's all kind of uh, materials like crystals crystal growth is another big thing that then in space so like the fiber cables so optical fiber cables they are used to do transmission of communication if you manufacture them in space they're like the most pure the purest form of it and so you can achieve just a uh, incredible performance and speed and so 
We could uh, have a lot of influence in, te- uh, in, uh, in technologies using this. So there's all kind of stuff like that. And uh, so I'm very excited about all this kind of stuff being done in orbit uh, around Earth. Uh, but then there's all kind of other stuff that we will learn by uh, you know, settling on the moon, on the surface of the moon. So reusing all... There's a big thing about uh, you know being able to 3D print structures from the surface uh, of the moon, from the regolith on the moon, or uh, being able to build some power sources on the moon, maybe like fusion reactors, uh, which will be you know in a sense more easily effective on the surface of the moon. And so there's all kind of stuff that you can do in space that they can have a huge huge influence on Earth. Wow. Well, as always, I want to remind our listeners that we'll have lots of links and additional information about the things that Roberto's talking about so people can dig a little bit deeper and uh, learn more about some of these technologies and all, specifically to some of the energy systems that uh, you talked about and are familiar with, whether it be getting back and forth to the moon or starting to think about getting to Mars and all that. Do you know much about kind of where we're at in terms of getting to a next level of speed or ability to to just travel more quickly across the solar system so the main bottleneck right now to being able to go to mars is like the 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 speed the our current propulsion methods so right now with conventional chemical rockets uh which you know some uh, like NASA and uh, SpaceX and other companies are developing, they uh, they can get us to Mars in a, a timeline between six and nine months, one way. So that's kind of like you know a big bottleneck for many reasons. So you know you have to bring uh, so much food and resources for astronauts to be in space, and then like you know the astronauts need to uh, live in uh, microgravity for that long time. And then once you get to Mars, you can you can stay like a few months to up to a year, depending on the timeline, the, the profile of the mission. So you have to bring with yourself all kinds of food and stuff like that for that amount of time, plus the return. So it's, you know, we're looking at at least like a two, two year trip uh, to go to Mars and back. And so one of the, the biggest kind of momentums right now, it's also the uh, idea of developing nuclear propulsion uh, uh, rockets. There's a, there's a bunch of projects right now being revived by some companies in NASA. And if we are able to develop those effectively, we can get to Mars in up to 45 days or like two months, for example. And so that would like, just simplify so much more, the first of all, the complexity of the mission, the cost, and we could literally just bring uh, tons and tons of uh, materials and resources to Mars to make uh, a base on on Mars. So I think one of the kind of like game-changing technologies would be definitely like new propulsion systems like the uh, nuclear propulsion. But other than that, we still have to do a lot of, you know, accomplishments in the using the local resources and uh, being able to build uh, structures on other surface of another planet. Uh, And that is being... Uh, right now, it's you know in the kind of um, in the plan for the with the Artemis missions with uh, you know going back to the moon. So we of course before going to Mars and being able to to build all this kind of stuff, we want to uh, you know validate and test it on uh, closer to Earth first. So 
we would do this uh, on, the, on the moon first, develop and validate all those technologies there first, and then uh, you know, use them to go to Mars. Aside from Mars, is there any other uh, particular planets or moons or anything that are sort of on the radar or that NASA is looking at as potential destinations? There's been uh, talks about mission, human missions to Venus because Venus has like a very you know thick atmosphere. Venus is first of all like uh, you know the, the the closest and uh, most similar in terms of like size and mass planet to Earth. The only thing is like you know there is uh, something that we still don't know and we don't understand and uh, we want to study and uh, and learn more with upcoming. Uh, there's a few upcoming missions going to Venus right now. They're really uh, really cool. Uh, we want to understand how the planet turned into uh, a hellish environment. So, which is like, you know, in a sense, what also some, uh, some scientists kind of, uh, it, it, basically the scientists are trying to warn the world, uh, you know, about because the worst case scenario from global climate change could be something that is right now happening on Venus. You know, the Venus is such a very, it's an atmosphere very rich in uh, carbon dioxide and uh, just made it such a strong greenhouse gas, greenhouse effect that is like the hottest place in the solar system. And so, so yeah, we want to study more how that happened and hopefully that Earth doesn't get to uh, something like that. Um, but there's a few, a few sections, a few areas in the, in the atmosphere of Venus where the temperature is just right, the atmospheric pressure is good enough, there is a few components of the atmosphere that are not good for human survival, so we would need to like filter those or whatever. But uh, would be like there's a few concepts about uh, maybe even building some kind of like floating uh, cities or balloons in uh, in the Venus atmosphere where uh, even human presence is possible. And then other than Venus, there's uh, all kind of other places in the solar system where. They're like very interesting for other reasons, not uh, specifically for human exploration, but for uh, discovering life. Uh, there's uh, places like the moons, uh, the moon of Jupiter, Europa, and Enceladus, which is the moon of Saturn. Those have proven underwater, under surface water oceans where life, uh, a very simple type of life, could exist right now. Uh, and so NASA is the, definitely like putting a lot of effort in uh, sending some missions there to discover and uh, measure uh, if there is any signs of life. The work about Venus and potential foreshadowing of what Earth's atmosphere could end up like is a, is a pretty frightening scenario. Yep. In terms of the missions to uh, the moon and setting up facilities on the moon, and traveling to Mars as it relates to that nuclear propulsion, et cetera. I realize there's probably, there's a lot of different calculations, but do you have a sense of how many, how long is that going to take? How many, how far away is that in terms of years? Right now, the, if you, if you look at uh, the NASA timeline for going to Mars, that's, you know, being worked, like right now, the main focus is the moon again. So then there is a, a new program called Moon to Mars. So you know, once we get a good sense of what is needed to settle on the moon, then we will probably try and do human missions to Mars. But the first early kind of time where we could send humans to Mars is probably between the late 2030s and the early 2040s. So I would say like at least like 15 years before. Uh, and a lot, a lot actually will depend on the, the success, the results from the nuclear propulsion technologies. So I think we will definitely see humans landing back on the moon and hopefully you know making habitats and settlements there i hope 
to see people going to Mars. What's next for you, Roberto? What are you most excited about in terms of your personal or professional journey? I really, after my uh, astronaut analog mission with NASA, I really got excited about all these new space habitats and, you know, living in space and, you know, human space flight and things like that. So I'm really getting excited about this new, the Artemis program, which will send, you know, humans back to the moon and, uh, and do that, you know, sustainably and uh, in, uh, with a very strong international cooperation. So... I, I'd love to have some kind of impact on that. So maybe try and, and work with NASA or other space companies in uh, in this new kind of era of uh, space exploration. And then at the same time, I'm, I'm always like very, very excited about the science, scientific missions uh, in space. Uh, you know, missions like uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which already now after, you know, uh, one year and a half or something, uh, already changed completely our understanding of the universe, like making amazing discoveries. And there's uh, so many other missions like the James Webb, uh, which NASA is always working on. And being able to just work on something like that would be would be just a you know a honor for me. Neat. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. It's it's been great to have you in town and to be able to uh, show you around New Orleans a little bit. And I uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Really, really good time here. Thanks, Greg. Be sure to stay tuned after the closing of this podcast when we ask Roberto about the Fermi Paradox. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Please help us spread the word and be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy, where you can find all of our available episodes, access important links and supporting information for each episode, Send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics. Get more information about our community engagement initiatives and join our mailing list, as well as make a much appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research mission. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy. So there's this concept called the Fermi Paradox, which tries to explain or talks about why human beings haven't had contact with other intelligent life in the universe. Could you explain that a little bit to us? And what are your thoughts on what may be some of the reasons or what are some of the key factors in that Fermi Paradox? Oh, yeah. Uh, This is like one of the most interesting topics for me. Uh, I've been trying to you know learn and study uh, as much as i could the all the reasons and uh, everything behind the fermi paradox uh, also because you know working at nasa a lot of people whenever i i had give talks or like talk to people they always always ask me about you know aliens or like you know life in the universe and things like that so in a sense it was also kind of like reasonable for me to to learn more about this so yeah so the fermi paradox basically was first fought by Enrico Fermi, who was like an Italian scientist, physicist back in the 30s and 40s. He was very influential in the discovery and the making of radio transmissions. And so when he was at lunch sitting with other colleagues and he just brought up this kind of question, where basically said, where is everybody? Where are aliens? Where, is, where are other civilizations? You know, if you think about it, if the universe has been around for so long, and uh, we know at least one advanced civilization that we are. Why other intelligent and advanced civilizations are not here yet in the realistic sense, you know, that uh, we have seen and proved 
their their presence and uh, and their uh, their 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 signs. And so, to explain that, like the current, you know, we haven't had any any proven reason of other intelligent civilizations. So. To explain that, you know, there's all kind of, uh, you know, different ways and different explanations. So there's uh, one entity that is called the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which actively search in the sky for artificial intelligence signals coming from other stars or planets. And we haven't found any, any yet. So it doesn't mean that, you know, there's no other intelligent civilizations sending in signals in space. Because we've just looked in a very, very small section of the universe for a very small time. And so one explanation is that, you know, we just haven't looked enough. And then there's all kinds of other reasons, which I think it's the explanation for the Fermi paradox is kind of like a combination of all these reasons. Another reason is that to receive or see signs of intelligent civilizations, you have to align, you know, not only you have to have a planet in another star system where like life is possible and then, you know, evolves the evolution of that planet is long enough to have intelligent life. And then from intelligent life, you have the right communication systems to reveal your presence or transmit in space. You also have to align temporarily with our current technologies. So if, you know, we as a species, we've been able to do interstellar communication for about, let's say, 100 years to be conservative. But if many, I don't, I don't know, maybe like in 100 years or 200 years, we will use a completely different communication system that 100 uh, years before, nobody ever think, thought about using it. And so something like this could happen on with other civilizations. Maybe they are using other communication systems that we have no idea can exist right now. And so we're just not aligned in that sense. And then there's all kind of other possible explanations. There's the dark forest theory, which basically says that if you are an intelligent species, you might be afraid of revealing your presence in the universe to other civilizations, because maybe those advanced species might want to go and conquer and exploit you. And so maybe you just don't want to reveal yourself. So you're just like, you're just silent among the universe to try and hide from other intelligent civilizations. So yeah, there's all kinds of different explanations. And so I think in general, especially from the latest results, from the latest missions with NASA, like the Kepler missions, uh, discovering thousands of exoplanets uh, around other stars. And then, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, Hubble and, uh, and other missions discovering so many, you know, galaxies and the stars in every galaxy. There's just an incredible amount of worlds up there, out there. And the probability that some of those worlds have the right conditions and have, you know, uh, life enough, uh, you know, developing for enough time to become intelligent is very, you know, credible to me. So it's just that we, we haven't had enough time to study this. And there's all kind of, uh, you know, things that can happen at the same time that one allows to get in touch with them. So again, we'll include some information about the Fermi Paradox on the webpage related to your podcast here. In your opinion, when or how do you think we may end up having first contact or do you think we will have first contact? I think it would take a while. It depends a lot on uh, how much effort is is put by the different countries and space agencies. Right now, there's only like very few ground observatories that are trying to detect intelligent signals from the from the universe. You know, kind of like a comparison that the SETI people do usually is that we we've been able to just like sample a spoon 
from the ocean, from the entire ocean. And uh, you know, if, if you look at this little spoon of uh, ocean water, you might not find any life there because you just like not have, you haven't sampled enough. And so if we are able to, to sample and uh, observe more of those kind of parts of the universe, we might be able to detect some intelligent signals. So I would say at least like it can take anything from like 30 to 100 years. Great. Well, thanks again. Great to uh, chat with you about all this. And we'll look forward to staying in touch and learning about all the exciting things you may be doing, including maybe being a mission specialist on a trip to the moon. Thank you, Sarah, Greg. It was a pleasure.